Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. Just a quick plea to uh, subscribe to this podcast and to rate and review it on whatever podcast platform you're listening. It really helps to boost our algorithm so that people who are looking for good podcasts can find us. Thanks again, and enjoy the episode. Welcome, welcome. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Being a Bad Martha. Um, Today, I have two wonderful guests, and we are going to talk about that quintessential topic, pregnancy and birth. And uh, I have two new moms that I just cannot wait to talk to about what the books don't tell you. So (laughs) I'm going to... So we have Drina and Jesse. Um, I'm going to let you gals introduce yourselves. Um, just give us a brief little intro about uh, about you, and if you want to say um, a little bit about your little your little one, uh, please do that as well. So, uh, Jesse, do you want to go first? Sure thing. So my name is Jesse, and I have a six and a half week old little boy named Daniel. And it's been quite a journey. So I'm really excited to be here and talk to you about it. Yay. And Drina? Hi, I'm Drina. And I have a seven-month-old girl named Gwendolyn. And I'm excited to share all things pregnancy and birth with you. Yay. Wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, during this podcast, you may hear some voices of the littles um, joining us because, uh, because yeah, that's the way it goes. Get used to it. <laughs> Here we go. Um, so I understand uh, from, I have, I'll fess up um, right from the beginning. I have never been pregnant that I know of, and I have never given birth. So I am a complete novice when it comes to this topic. Um, but I was talking with friends um, recently. And, uh, you know, I, when I was thinking about, about, um, doing a podcast on this topic and thinking, you know, by this time in, in modern America, you should pretty much know exactly what you're up against. You know, they have all these books about what to expect when you're expecting and all this sort of thing. And so there really should be no surprises when it comes to pregnancy and birth, right? Well, apparently I am so wrong. (laughs) So um, let's start uh, chronologically, I guess. Let's start with pregnancy. And um, just to tell our listeners a little bit about what, what surprised you and what were you not expecting? What did nobody warn you about? I think one thing off the bat, and I, I don't, Dreen, I don't know if this was your experience, but I think one of the things that was the most shocking was exactly how true some of the things that people do warn you about were. It's almost like the degree to which it was true. I was unprepared for the the way that 
boundaries are not easily respected once a woman becomes pregnant. The the public knowledge assumptions about your body and your function and your life and your decision making. People tell do tell you that it's not exactly something they don't warn you about. I just still didn't feel adequately prepared for it. Can you give us some examples? Sure. Um, I was pregnant in a global pandemic and people still immediately would cross a six foot barrier to try and touch my stomach. Like that was still happening. Wow. In wow. a global pandemic, which is just very bizarre to me that it was, that it didn't. So I think it was one of those things you're warned about, but then you aren't really expecting the degree to which, or the immediate willingness to ask what amount to very personal questions about the state of your vagina and your uterus and the intentionality or lack thereof of your conception. People do say, oh, it's amazing how invasive people can be once a woman's pregnant, but I still wasn't ready. Drina, was that your experience or am I on an island? No, I I think, um, you know, when when my husband and I started trying, we made a point not to tell anybody because we knew that we would get these very invasive questions about our sex life, which is not something we want to talk about. We don't want to tell people when we're having sex and how often and how it's going. It's such a strange thing. And people do ask about that. I mean, yes, we were also pregnant during the global pandemic. And, you know, every now and then people would ask, so any babies yet? You know, it's just one of those things that people always ask, which I find to be very intrusive. Um, When you're married, people always ask, well, are you guys thinking of having kids? When are you going to have kids? And I, I think it's really a rude question because you don't know what anybody's experience is. You don't know if they're trying, you don't know if they've tried and failed. You don't know. You just don't know. It's such an intrusive question. So from the get go, we said, we are going to not tell anyone we're trying and when we got pregnant, we were we chose not to tell anyone until we had our first doctor's appointment. We would tell our parents, and then we would wait for the 12-week mark to then kind of tell more people. But we were just being very secretive about it. And, and we got pregnant mm. the month that the pandemic started. So everything was really fresh. Oh, wow. Our boundaries were, were lying in the sand. We, we are not seeing anybody. So I, I, I fortunately got to avoid the whole touching the belly thing, which was something I'd always dreaded when I thought about pregnancy. Uh, yeah. In the future, I thought, oh, gosh, am I gonna have to deal with people touching my belly? I'm gonna have to go through that uncomfortable thing of telling people, please don't touch my belly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the things we talked about talk about um, on this podcast in in any topic, you know, in so many topics that um, that women's bodies are are public property, you know, that there's right. this this idea Absolutely. that that women's bodies are public property, and anyone at any time can make any sort of comment about how you're living your life and how invasive and rude that is. <laughs> But Jesse, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just on the it was it's amazing what what you were just saying about what you what we dread and what you or the questions. I didn't plan on having children. That wasn't a long-term life plan of mine. That was a shift that happened very recently in my life. And we've been married almost 7 years and we've been getting those questions from day 1 and I think mm-hmm. I truly believed the pandemic was going to be a better shield than it was because we were seeing no one and neighbors and strangers on the street had things to say and wanted the, so that public that word public property is just incredibly resonant to, yeah. to that experience 
Yeah, absolutely. So people asked about the state of your vagina. Oh, like, oh do you know God. if you had an, a posterior cervix was a question from, it's just weird. People want to sound smart and they want to sound like experts. Okay. But, uh, just bizarre invasive questions that don't make any sense. And they wouldn't know what the answer meant half the time if you told them. Right. Now I'm curious is I'm curious if there's a gender component to this. Was it more women that were asking these questions, more men or or it 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 was Definitely it didn't matter. More women, more okay. women with more feeling like they had a right to, but the men's questions were dumber. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much pretty much across the board. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Drina. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that I think a lot of the the vaginal questions for me came after I delivered, uh, you know, because people uh-huh. want to know, they want to know your story. You know, if they're, if they're a, a mother and they gave birth, people would be sensitive and say, if you're willing to share, I would love to know your birth story, but I understand if that's not something you want to share. And then other people who maybe are a little distant from the time that they had birth or maybe have never given birth would just kind of ask in a very rude way. So how'd it go? Tell me everything. Uh, And it's a a deeply personal, you know, uh, situation. It's, it's a deeply personal experience. And I think it's up to the person who delivered to decide if they want to share that or not. And Mm -hmm. uh, for, for me, you know, I, a few people knew that, uh, and I, I don't mind sharing. Uh, A few people knew that I had some tearing through the process and then it became a thing of, so how are your tears healing? How's your vagina all the time? And it's like, um, you can just ask, how am I doing? I mean, that, the level of information that people expect at, during delivery is shocking to me. We were getting, I, bizarre, I don't mind calling out a couple family members who had the very had the very personal information of when I I was past my due date. And so I was going to be induced and very few family members had that information. And on the day of my induction, we got text messages from family members who were not on that list saying good luck. And then asking during labor, how dilated I was. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then when you, tell, when you call people out and you say you weren't supposed to share that information, they're appalled. They're appalled that you have a problem with anything that they have done. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, women's bodies are public property. So why wouldn't they tell everyone? Yeah. Everyone has a right to know, right? Yes. That's they oh, feel they are goodness. entitled to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so any other things come up during pregnancy that you kind of wish you had, um, had a better understanding of beforehand or any, any pleasant surprises? I had a pleasant surprise. I, I had the surprise of, um, not having any morning sickness. So (gasps) I I spent, I know, I spent the entire first trimester waiting for it, which was equally stressful. You know, you, everything <laughs> oh you learn about it is you're going to be sick. You're going to be sick. It's going to be awful. You're going to have this morning sickness and you're going to be nauseous. You're not going to want to eat certain things or smell certain things. You hear all of these things and you anticipate it and wait for it to come. And it never came. And I thought, 
this is bizarre, right? This is unusual. What's wrong with me? Is something wrong? Am I still pregnant? Right. Um, because that's another thing too, is once you pee on that stick, you kind of don't know for sure until you go into the doctor. And in my mm-hmm. case, it was it was uh, four weeks from the time that I took my test was when I was supposed to go into the doctor for the first time. So mm. for four weeks, you kind of just have to assume you're pregnant, treat yourself like you're pregnant and, you know, just kind of be scared. Like, is, is this is this true? Is this happening? Am I bleeding? Am I spotting? Is this normal? You know, you have all these questions, all these things, and then you start to feel like, am I asking too many questions? Should I be bugging my doctor all the time? Why is my appointment not till four weeks later? Of course, you learn all of that along the yeah. way, but nobody tells you that right off the bat. And and so it's kind of a, a stressful whirlwind that happens. No, I remember yeah. that that gap being really shocking to me. Like the the gap from pee on stick to we actually want to see you in the office felt incredibly longer than I would have expected. Huh. Yeah. Do you think that was deliberate or was it just a function of not having an appointment? I think it, I think that's they just don't see you till eight or ten weeks, depending on your provider. And I, in my case, I I found out I was pregnant about as early as a test can tell you. So it just, I was just, I was amazed. I thought, you know, you get pregnant, you call the doctor and say, I think I'm pregnant and that they would like want to see you rather quickly. Yeah. And that yeah. was not the case. Interesting. Yeah. They, I think they want to wait until you're eight to 10 weeks because then they can actually do an ultrasound to confirm. And I think that might be a preference. I'm not sure. It could be a provider preference. It could be different with different health networks. I'm not sure. I know sometimes they can do the blood test as well. I didn't have that. I did a urine and a and an ultrasound, but they had same. to wait eight to ten weeks to do that. Yeah, mm. same. I think they. I, I think it might be intended as a positive thing of like, welcome to your appointment. Here's your first look at your baby and its heartbeat, which is a really magical moment. Like that is really really lovely. I it's just I just remember for all that I thought I knew what I was doing, not expecting to wait a month. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if that's changed in recent years. And I wonder what that is a function of. Yeah, if it's, if it's like, you know, our because our healthcare in this country is so great. You know, if it's just like, well, we're not paying for an early test um, type of thing. Or if it is like, up until then, you know, it could go either way. You could have a miscarriage. Who knows? Yeah. 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 And I don't those, know. those pregnancy tests can be very faint. I took, I took two and the line was so faint on both of them. I thought, okay, I'm going to be excited and maybe I shouldn't be as excited until I know for sure. But this is, I guess this is what I have to rely on a drugstore purchase. This is the thing that's telling me I'm pregnant until somebody with a higher degree than me tells me otherwise. Right, right. That was another surprise was I didn't expect to, I don't know if this happened to you with taking multiple in one day, but I I took four over the course of the morning that I first saw Mm. a faint line because I just thought I was hallucinating because it was a faint line and I didn't know that the line could get darker on the same day. And so that was a Interesting. Okay. Mine actually didn't get darker. Mine, uh, I took one and then I, I took one two days earlier than I was supposed to. Uh, because, you know, we were planning, so we had it all scheduled. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if I found out I was pregnant on my birthday? And so I took my test and and I had the positive. And then two days later, I took it again when I was supposed to and had the positive. But they were faint both times. Interesting. And Jesse, you you took it, you said you took it four times and, and you had 
sort of different intensity of results? Yeah, I mean, the first one was so faint that I convinced myself I was making it up because I was one of those people who I got it in my head that I was experiencing super early pregnancy symptoms almost the day after the fateful night of love. Um, <laughs> and therefore convinced myself when I was experiencing said symptoms and like I was like, well, I'm pregnant and then talked myself out of it repeatedly. So then when I had that faint line, I went, well, it's all in your head. So I therefore took three more all over the course of the morning and watched the line get darker before I believed it. Wow. Okay. Wow. All right. So good to know. Good to know. Good information to pass along. Awesome. Any other, uh, any other like advice that you would want to give to other pregnant women in terms of things that you learned or things that you experienced that you wish you'd known? Hmm. They tell you to walk, but really for sure, actually do walk, like walk a lot that you hear that. But I, I think towards the end when I was so limited on other things, walking actually saved my sanity and my back after labor and delivery, like from having some supportive muscles for, cause I'm very petite. So when you're little, you get the same size pregnancy as everybody else, just on a smaller frame to carry it. So if the, I, the one piece of advice I really followed to a T that mattered to me was move, walk, do things. You'll feel much more sane and you'll feel like you have at least one thing you're in charge of. Nice. And this was throughout the pregnancy or was this just specifically at the end? Uh, throughout in general, um, just for, for good steady state exercise. But I think at the end, I probably would have lost my mind had I not already been in the habit from earlier in the pregnancy of long walks. Nice. Yes, they say they say walking also helps with the delivery. Um, they they do say to walk a lot and to move a lot. Yoga is helpful. Uh, pregnancy balls, just to move around on them, kind of helps loosening the hips and making room for the extra load that you have to carry. Um, but but keeping in shape is so important, and I know that they tell you that, but it really truly is, and you start to feel it in your knees. Um, and in your back, because you're carrying so much more weight than you're used to, even when you make yourself strong, or you are already strong, and you start to grow that baby, you start to realize, oh, do I need to be stronger? This is a lot. And you just kind of have to really take care of yourself. Um, I don't know if the walking actually helped my delivery. I had a very difficult delivery. But, uh, but they say it does. (laughs) Nothing helped my delivery. (laughs) Nothing was going to make that smooth. Um, I do think it helped me, the the strength you're talking about, because I think the other thing, we all think of pregnancy and it's a lot of weight. Yes, but it's also specifically a lot of weight forward in a place our bodies don't usually carry it. Right. So being strong and flexible, strong and pliable, both is important because otherwise you're going to have, I mean, you're going to have back pain no matter what that's unavoidable, but you're going to have Mm -hmm. terrible back pain if you can't, if you don't adjust to carrying that, that load. Yeah. 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 And that's also why I think yoga is helpful because it helps with balance. Yes. Your balance is definitely thrown. You, you feel like you want to tip forward. (laughs) You really do. Um, Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Considering where the weight is placed. Absolutely. Definitely. And it's not just the weight of the baby. It's the amniotic fluid and, all of the extra blood vessels that you're growing. So yeah, it's a... Or my personal favorite uh, way they break down part of the weight that you gain in pregnancy, maternal fat stores. (laughs) (laughs) 
They have some really funny uh, terms. I have a friend who just had uh, twins, actually, and she's 36, and they called her pregnancy a geriatric pregnancy. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> After 35, you're geriatric. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, real nice. That's so swell. So oh, my rude. God. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, I do remember once uh, reading and this, for some reason, this really stuck in my head that the amount of calories that you expend when you're making another human being um, is equivalent to climbing a mountain every day. So on top of, you know, the stretching and the, the walking and the exercise to keep yourself strong, you know, you are also, your body is is working hard. It's working really hard. And they try and they and the doctors do want you to watch your weight. And after a while, I said, you know what, I'm just gonna be heavy. You know, they want you to be within a range. And I, I would ask them, you know, am I unhealthy? I don't have high blood pressure. I, you know, my my blood sugar is all fine. I'm just gonna be overweight. I had a I had go. gained what they called excessive weight for my pregnancy. Uh, but you know what, I, I lost it all afterwards. So you know, no big deal there. I don't think. There uh, comes a point where, like, your body's going to do what it's going to do. Exactly. I was exercising. I was eating. I wasn't restricting, but I was eating healthfully because I wanted to to fuel this this child. And I felt like I was behaving very well. And the weight just kept coming. So yep. it's there's a point at which our bodies know more about this process than a chart that we've done exactly to try yes. and measure it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, that, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I've always been questionable about doctors and the way that they look at weight anyways. They look at your BMI and tell you that you're overweight, but they're not measuring muscle mass. And and that's a big contributor to our weight. So so we women are always led to believe, oh, you're overweight, even if you're totally active and in shape, especially in pregnancy. And yes. so, you know, have to account yeah. for the fact yeah. that I'm building muscle during pregnancy and that's going to contribute to my, to the scale. And, and I'm happy with that. That's fine. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. BMI is a load of crap. Um, maybe we should do one on that because uh, I actually talked about it on um, a series that I did. Oh, wow. Probably six or seven years ago now called for fork's sake. And we looked at uh, women and uh, uh all issues having to do with body image and, and body perception. And, mm. um, and uh, yeah, we, we took down the BMI because it really is, it's, it's not accurate at it's all. Not. It's not. Um, well, when I think about the fact that this was something that blew my mind to think about sometimes during pregnancy, and I found oddly soothing and overwhelming at the same time, you get pregnant and without anyone telling it to this little organ in your body, that's the size of a stone fruit immediately starts traveling up out of your pelvis into your abdomen to make room for what it's going to have to grow. It expands to the size of a watermelon over the course of this time, not only grows a human, but grows a whole other self-contained organ. The placenta is actually an organ of the mother's body that is grown mm -hmm. for this purpose to sustain the fetus and then is shed. Your body creates a disposable organ. It can gain whatever it needs to do to do that. <laughs> there you go. There you Mic go. Mic drop. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that leads me to ask, um, how? what kind of feelings did that sort of engender in you that your body's doing what it's going to do. 
You know, this is this is something that is in many ways it's out of your your conscious control. Um, and how how obviously both of you you know were were looking forward to the experience of motherhood. Well, not obviously. I don't know that for one hundred percent, but it sounds like you were. Um, so how did how did feeling your body sort of take over and be like, I got this? How did that feel? It felt really empowering. It felt incredible, honestly, to know that my body can build a human, to know that I was capable of that, even if it was out of my control. You know, it's it's an incredible thing. We women are built in such incredible ways and our bodies do incredible things and it has a mind of its own. Um, nice. it, it just felt really powerful and I felt like nothing else mattered and that I could do so much. If I can create a human, I can do anything. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with that that word powerful because I think I always struggle with the language we throw around a lot of pregnancy is a beautiful experience. Well, to me in my world, pregnancy has a beautiful result mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful, but it wasn't always a beautiful experience, but it was always powerful. There was mm-hmm. never a time that I didn't feel like this was immense and empowering and impressive and special. There were times it was also gross and uncomfortable and and not, not glowy and the most gorgeous I've ever felt in my life. Like I'm led to believe I should feel, but I did always (laughs) feel like I could like tame an ocean. Nice. Nice. You mean you weren't always in a soft focus in the? Oddly, in- I did not feel as though I had my own hair and makeup crew following me everywhere. I no one brought a wind machine. I'm very <laughs> wearing flowy pastel colors. <laughs> sure, sure. No lily pad. <laughs> there were there were ever increasingly sized leggings and black shirts of various shapes and <laughs> a decent amount of vomit because I did get the morning sickness and still uh, a feeling of, of power because, wow, look what, what my body can do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just, um, just adding to what you said, you know, the gross things, there are definitely a lot of gross things that happen that I can't say I was prepared for. I can't oh, share, say, share. I can't, I can't wait to hear say, this. Yeah, I can't say that I was prepared for the amount of panty liners I was going to go through during pregnancy. My God. <laughs> so many. I started buying them in bulk, like bulk. I've never in my life had so many panty liners because you were just constantly you know, oozing down there. I don't even I don't know what else to call it. It's, it's, it goes in a level beyond discharge. It's just oozing. It's, it's gross and it's constant. And, you know, there was never a day where I was like, oh, I can just sleep in the nude. Nope. You had to have those underwear on. You had to yeah. catch everything that was kind of flowing out of you. And then, you know, your, your breasts change. They be well, you're standing in the shower rubbing vitamin E oil on your nipples because <laughs> the water hurts them when it hits yep. them. Like, mm, yes, wow. they change. They become very sensitive. They darken. You get dark spots in weird places, like the the color of my armpits changed. I did not expect that. I you know I expected maybe my my nipples, my areolas would would darken. Um, I didn't expect the the growth of my boobs everybody says your hair is going to get full i didn't expect it to all fall out first oh wow <laughs> and, and then get full 
and then you deliver. And then a few weeks later, it just starts falling out again. Uh, it's just all of these really incredible changes happening to your body. You know, my, my foot went up a size, half a size, my, all, none of my shoes would fit. Uh, oh, wow. You know, so it's, and I was a person who loves my shoes. So I'm like, oh, really? I'm buying a shoe stretcher <laughs> before I replace all of these shoes. But I had to buy all new bras and women know how expensive bras are. Mm. It's ridiculous. It's a necessity for a lot of people. Some people don't want them and that's totally fine too. But it's just one of those everyday things that should not be as expensive as it is, but it is. Yeah. And women have to change out. Uh, in my case, I'm I'm busty. I'm quite busty pre-pregnancy, and then it got you know m- more severe, uh, and like it's a condition. And then try to find a nursing or pregnancy bra that is simultaneously soft enough to not make you want to chop your own areola off, but yeah. also supportive enough for giant jugs. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing too is you if if you were a braless person before, you it's hard to do that when you're nursing because you leak. So you have to have. Right coverage and protection in ways that you never did. You know, if, if you're someone like me who used to like to sleep in the nude, that's, that's gone. (laughs) It's just gone. Yeah. If you want to protect your sheets, it's gone. (laughs) Right. Right. And your mattress. Exactly. Yeah. Well, then the third trimester and the love hate relationship with the, the second pregnancy pillow that I referred to as the the cage (laughs) pillow, because I I liked my one for early pregnancy that was small and just between my knees and like, just kind of helped me not have terrible back pain. And then it got to where I needed something to keep me on my side. And I had inherited this U-shaped pillow from a friend that was necessary to get me sleep, but also made rolling over in bed require an act of Congress. (laughs) yeah i i i was a one side sleeper which you know they say you can sleep on either side there's one side that's better i guess for maybe circulation or blood flow to the baby or or just back pain there's so many different things so i was a one side sleeper so i had to change sides of the bed with my husband and sleep on a different side and after a while we got to the point where i also had the pregnancy pillow but he would have to help me sort of climb into this fort we built on the bed you know with the pillow the pregnancy pillow wrapping around the back coming between the knees another pillow under my belly another pillow wedged between my feet another pillow you know it it just wow. became excessive and then i don't i don't know if you got this jesse but i had a ton of heartburn oh uh, which yeah, I hear that, you know, some people are like, oh, if you get heartburn, your baby's going to have a lot of hair and blah, blah, blah. You know, they, everybody has all these old wives tales. But I just I just had so much heartburn. And I mm. got to the point where I had to sleep sitting up like the elephant man. I mean, I was propped up, but I had an airplane pillow wrapped around my neck and I was just sitting up in bed. That That was the only way that was comfortable. I wow. got to the point at the end where it was, I had two regular bed pillows stacked one on top of the other so I could be at an angle for my for my reflux and the cage pillow around me to keep me towards the side for my low back. And like, just, it was comical. <laughs> wow. Wow. It is a whole production. <laughs> yeah. Truly. Yeah. Truly. I think wow. that's another challenge that people need to, like that what I would suggest being prepared for if you're going to attempt this lovely journey is if you're used to considering yourself a fairly low maintenance person, be prepared for your own resistance to what you need in order to function as pregnancy progresses. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I, uh, throughout the pregnancy lost sleep. I didn't sleep, 
I would say probably somewhere around the start of my second trimester, I would just start to wake up at four and then three and then two in the morning. And I would just be up for the day. And I would take like an hour or two hour nap after I would finish my work day. Um, but I would just be up for the day and I would go to bed earlier and earlier and it didn't matter. I would still wake up at four in the morning and be completely awake. And, um, and it's, you know, it's an adjustment. It's part of whatever's going on with the body. And it was just something that I had to adjust to. And I, and I did, I felt like I did fairly well. And then of course it's something that spills over into when the baby comes, but you get a lot of really rude remarks from people when they find out you're pregnant. Oh, goodbye to your sleep. Oh, goodbye to your life. Say goodbye to your social life. And it's always so rude, really. (laughs) I mean, it's not, it's not a morning. It's a, it's an adjustment and, and you, you make that adjustment and, and it is difficult. Sleep deprivation is a very real thing. Burnout is a very real thing. And we definitely need to take care of ourselves and, and, and seek assistance and and get care for ourselves. Self-care is very important, but, but people are just so rude about it. They don't, they don't really understand how to approach it. And, and are just kind of making light of something that is really challenging and really difficult and can be really hard on, uh, you know, our, our mental health as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's not just rude. It's also incredibly fatalistic. Those comments that people make Mm. the assumption that it has to be that way. And the, the, the framing that you just stated about it is so much healthier of what, what kind of world would it be if people approached pregnant women with, hey, when I went through this, I needed to make sure I got sleep. So I did this yeah. or make sure you take care of yourself or here, are th- you know, I want to make sure that you don't feel deprived and isolated in postpartum instead of saying, well, you'll never have so- sleep again or you won't have friends or goodbye to your life before. Yeah. If we're going to acknowledge that there are these major changes that are definitive challenges, could we not approach them as a society supportively? (laughs) Exactly. 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 Yeah. That rather than sort of this hands off approach, like, well, you're screwed. Yeah. Say something. I mean, if you really care about someone, say like, hey, you know, are are you, do you need some sleep? Can I help you out for half an hour? Is there mm-hmm. anything I can do for you? You know, are you stressed out? You know, can, do you need a helping hand with something, you know, instead of being like, well, see ya. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And oftentimes it's people, it's not always people without children. I'm always surprised when it's somebody who also has children. Uh, but you know, it's like, you, you just don't understand the experience and maybe don't comment on things that you're not familiar with. Simple yeah. as that. Um, and my husband would say things like, you know, people who are saying that maybe weren't expecting children. And I would tell him, no, I do have friends who were trying for children. And I think maybe they just were thinking about the squishy little love bug that they get at the end of the road and not thinking about the process and the sacrifices and the adjustments that it takes in order, you know, for all of that to work out as blissfully as it does, it's, yeah. it's still a lot of work. It's going yeah. to be work. And I think this is just occurring to me now, and I don't know if this was kind of your experience too. There's a decent amount of a resurgence of high school girl on girl crime around pregnancy and birth, like other women who have had children who mean to be supportive, but have their own unprocessed bitterness or insecurity around pregnancy, around birth, around mm. having a young child are some of the mm-hmm. most negative in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I was, uh, 
I was fortunate enough to have one of my mommy friends, I have a few of them, but one of them who just ended up being such a saint, you know, she would text me with things that were like this, uh, this stretch cream, the uh, stretch mark cream really worked for me. And I know some to some point it's genetic, but you know, if, if you're looking for something, this is what I would recommend, or I really enjoyed this blog. If it's of any interest to you, check it out. Uh, you know, she, she brought me her pregnancy pillow. She would let me float around in her pool. Cause she would say, Oh, when I was pregnant in the summer, this always felt so good. So, you know, there's, there's one in a million. I found yeah. one in a million, but yeah, we yeah, all there be is, like her. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, there really is, there really is sort of this, like you said, this girl on girl, I don't know what it is. If it's like, it, I don't know, it's not hatred, but, and it's not competition. I just don't know. It's what it is they want to nation like it's it's a kind of like welcome to it it's been miserable for me it's going to be for you it's a weird solidarity but trapped in this kind of toxic place yeah it's, it's really unfortunate too and i think and i and i do know some women who have become resentful you know maybe maybe of their partner or their family or whatnot and 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 i think that it's hard for them to recognize that this is an isolated situation that maybe their experience is unique and and shouldn't be that way. I think that it isn't normalized enough for people to kind of recognize, oh, maybe I shouldn't be feeling this way and I should do something about it or talk to someone about it. Um, you know, the same way there's a stigma with mental health and seeking assistance. I think that, you know, po postpartum um, depression is an issue for a lot of people and whether they yes, realize it or yes. not, they could have gone through it. And I, yeah. I was fortunate to not go through it, but but a lot of people do, and it isn't always as severe as the mainstream media makes it seem. And so I think that's what makes it difficult for people to recognize that they are going through it. They think, oh, I'm supposed to hate my baby, and that's that's part of it, but I don't hate my baby. And that's not always part of it. That's 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 some cases. That's not all cases. Some, right. some women experience burnout before they even begin, and that's part of it. Yeah, yeah and I yeah. think that word normalized that you just used um, – that instead of normalizing seeking help, there seems to be a desire, I think, among some people who have had certain negative experiences to normalize their experience, to make it normative, and therefore project it onto others who are about to have children. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, I, I think there's also a, you know, a, a social, socio, uh, political, I what's the fancy, fancy academic word for this, but you know, we, we are a society of single family units and that is so antithetical to, um, healthy living. Right. You know, I mean, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to do a lot of things. And, yeah. um, and the idea of isolating ourselves, you know, by immediate marital and kinship bonds only, um, I think is really is harmful to so many stages in our lives um, from, you know, these beginning stages of pregnancy and birth all the way through to this, you know, when we're elderly and, right. uh, and we have no more support around us because, you know, our families have moved off to their own single family units and the people that we, that we were close to and that we developed mutual support systems with may have, may have passed on already. So right. it's the idea that you have to do it all by yourselves um, can engender quite a bit of bitterness 
if because of circumstances in your life, that makes the whole process a lot harder than it has to be. Right. Global pandemic didn't help that. No, it (laughs) certainly didn't. It certainly didn't. Yeah. But uh, with that in mind, my husband and I went into it knowing and just reminding ourselves we are in the middle of a global pandemic and we just have to really, you know, take care of ourselves and remind ourselves of that. We might face challenges that other new families don't. You know, we might not be able to have the help right away that most people do. And it's true. Our our families didn't get to actually hold our baby until she was four months old mm. uh, because we had her right in the middle of the surge uh, in December wow. of 2020. And the pediatrician, you know, we were entertaining all of these ideas, getting vaccinated, quarantining and all of this. And the pediatrician just said, you know what? We just don't recommend it. If you can avoid it, that would be best. And you know what? That's what we wanted to do. Why risk it? Yeah. Um, so in, we had we just had to keep reminding ourselves we don't we don't have that village. We we can't have people over. We can't do this and that. But we also still had people, you know, connecting with us emotionally and and talking to us constantly. We were zooming with and facetiming, and people were reaching out and being supportive. And um, I think it's interesting to talk about support. And the way people know how to be supportive. If it's material, I think people know how to be supportive in that way. And a lot of people don't know how to be emotionally vulnerable and lend support in other ways. Do you find that yeah. to be true, Jesse? Yes, I do. I think people, they have a set of things they know how to do that is like, I am helping. And it, it's it's active in particular. And that wasn't always available in the pandemic for people to execute. So it, it becomes in this space that people are, it's in order to practice empathy for someone, you have to be willing to accept the possibility that something could happen to you, which mm-hmm. is vulnerable. And I think people are really nervous about it or afraid they're going to do it wrong, or it's unpleasant to even the good big emotions can feel unpleasant if they're too big for your vulnerability threshold. And so mm. people don't always know how to process that enough to be present for you. Mm. Yeah. There's one well thing that I learned to do for myself um, during pregnancy and it took a little bit of adjustment and it was never a point where I had to sit down and tell myself to do it. But at some point I gave up the, uh, you know, the way people ask, how are you? And everybody just kind of defaults to, oh, I'm okay. Thanks. Or things are good. I would just lay in. (laughs) I became that person. (laughs) This is how I'm feeling. This is how things are going, but I'm good. Otherwise, you know, I would just tell them honestly, and that's Mm -hmm. something people don't normally do. And even after the baby, I would tell them, they would ask, how are you doing? I'd say, oh, you know, uh, I, I feel this way. I emotionally feel this. I'm going through all of this hormonal drop and that's really affecting my mood, but my health is fine. I'm happy with the baby. I would just tell them exactly like it was. Um, I feel the same way. I feel like that's a soup, maybe a superpower that happens during pregnancy, particularly <laughs> if you're pregnant either, either with a difficult pregnancy or at a difficult time or whatever, because I think, so there's a term that gets used a lot in disability communities and particularly invisible disability communities of uh, having enough spoons 
for something. And right. I, I've had an immune disorder my whole life. So that's something I've always been very aware of, of like, do I have enough spoons for that? And I feel like I had always expended a ton of spoons on making others comfortable with my complicated experiences. And mm-hmm. during pregnancy, and certainly in postpartum and after my birth experience, I ran the hell out of spoons. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh, you know, similar. Uh, I I would imagine a similar experience to postmenopause when you just completely run out of fucks. You know, it's mm-hmm. like here's the want, truth. Here's what's here's happening. The truth, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. You ask me, you're going to get it, and if you exactly. can't deal with it, it's not my issue. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, let's move on to birth. And, you know, again, share what you want to share. Um, But uh, am I correct in remembering that you both had rather difficult births? Yes, in my case. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I'm very comfortable sharing about it. So, because people need to okay. know that people, okay. as am I. As like, am I. All right. Wonderful. Well, Jesse, why don't you, why don't you let us know about your experience? Um, sure. So I had a, a high risk pregnancy because of my immune disorder and some, some propensities that they were concerned about. And oddly, none of what we prepared for in my pregnancy ended up materializing. And I was very lucky. Uh, but with that risk came this belief that I was going to either deliver early naturally because I'm very petite and there were issues with um, antibodies in my blood and the baby and I had contractions at 20 weeks and ended up in labor and delivery. So we really were expecting a very early baby. And in fact, the opposite happened. I went overdue and was scheduled for an induction because they didn't want me to go much further overdue. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. induction took three days before uh, turning into an emergency crash C-section. And over the course of the three days of my induction was possibly the most dehumanizing medical experience of my life with just shift change and competence and some of the least compassionate nurses I've ever encountered, a travel nurse assigned to the hospital due to COVID who I remember making the comment when setting up my epidural pump. I hope I did that right. It's different from my last hospital. And then a day and a half of communicating to the rest of the staff that my epidural wasn't working correctly, being dismissed, being told my pain wasn't real until finally on the, on the final day of my induction, someone went, wait, the green light's not blinking on your pump. Oh my God. So it hadn't been working for days. Uh, And that's just, I mean, that's just one after another, after another, um, one of the things that I had done to prepare for birth was a, a prenatal fitness class that involved working with a doula online about birth positions and knowing my body. And I'm, I'm a body practitioner. I teach movement and Pilates. And so I felt very prepared for birth and then had a midwife who wouldn't allow me to change positions during pushing. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Who I sincerely believe had given up on me delivering vaginally before she ever walked in the room. Wow. Um, I, it's, it's, I don't want to say, I'm very torn on how to say what my, exactly how devastating that experience was, because I don't want to dissuade people from having children if they want them, because my son is beautiful and I don't have regrets, but I do think I was underprepared for how bad it can be. Mm -hmm. Even, even if you are a strong personality, who's used to being good at being your own advocate, how much the, the power of that institution can bear down on you and disempower you as you go. And I don't think I was prepared. Like I had heard the phrase emergency C-section and understood that that would be 
disappointing or daunting if it, but like felt like I could process it. I in no way was mentally prepared for what it would mean when that moment came and and it was converting to emergency C-section and then suddenly no one is saying your name anymore or speaking to you as a person. Right. <gasps> and you're flying down the hall on a gurney, half naked, unable to stop pushing because you've been pushing for two hours and in worlds of pain and afraid that you're harming your child because you can't stop your body from pushing, but they've told you that he's stuck and the amount of fear and panic that comes with that when you're already exhausted and haven't been allowed to eat in days, I was not remotely prepared for. And, um, we had the C-section. It's, it's just one of the most bizarre things I've ever experienced because you, I, I now literally struggle to watch medical shows where doctors are being compassionate to women in labor because it wasn't my experience at all. Right. And, I just remember having never in my life could I have imagined having to scream at staff to let me see my baby before they took him out of the operating room. (gasps) And it's just, it's very bizarre. And I could, I'll I'll let Drina talk about her experience and then we could cross wires and stuff in other ways. Cause I'm sure we overlap in places, but I just, I could, I could get on a soapbox for a week about how bizarre and terrible some of that was. Wow. Wow. You win. How do I follow that? <laughs> no, 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 no. There's, nothing is a comparison. No, Everything of course. Yeah. <laughs> of yeah, course. Nor, nor is it a competition that I think of she course. wanted to win. <laughs> <laughs> of course. No, everybody's experience is completely different. And, uh, and the way you take it is different too. And one of the things I kept thinking going in is whatever happens, happens. We're going in with a plan, but whatever happens, happens. That's just something that they don't really tell you enough of is, is you kind of have to expect things to change. And Mm -hmm. uh, at some point it's out of your control. Right. And, uh, and we thought that I would also have the emergency C-section, but it, and, and you talking about it makes me wonder if they have like a time limit (laughs) on, you know, okay, she's been pushing for, Two hours. It's time to get the baby out because I, I was at the to an extent. I think the length of time you've been in labor. I think it all plays into it, and I wonder how much of that is medically necessary, and how much is someone's tea time. To be honest, right, mm. right, right, mm. right. Yeah, my my experience. Um, I was having contractions for, I want to say about a week and a half, maybe longer, but I was, I called it in a week and a half early to have them check on it. And, um, and I, and I went in and had a false labor. They checked me and they said, yeah, you're having contractions, but gosh, can I even remember now? I think they were six minutes. No, they were, they were nine, six, between six and nine minutes apart. And I think they want you to have them. I forget. Is it two or three? I can't remember. Um, whatever it was, I was just on the cusp. Like you don't come in yet. Um, and they checked my dilation and I was only one centimeter dilated. So I was contracting like that for a week and a half. Oh God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, after a while I just kind of got used to it, you know, it was like, Oh, is this, you know, they tell you to look out for Braxton Hicks. And I thought, well, this is too common for Braxton Hicks. This is occurring too frequently. And I would sit there all day, every day for a week and a half, just timing my contractions. And after a while I was like, you know what? I'm just going to not time them anymore because I'm, I'm, I just want to not think about that. Um, but my, you know, my due date came and my baby didn't come. And so they, uh, they had, I had my appointment the day after the due date. And so they scheduled my induction 
and um and luckily my my late my my water broke before then uh it broke on christmas day and uh, my induction was scheduled for the 30th and uh, she was due the 22nd of december um so we went in and they they checked because I didn't even know if my water broke or not. I just said, you know, I've been laughing a lot. And every time I laugh, I feel like I wet myself. So I've either peed myself. I've either <laughs> lost all control of my bladder or my water's broken. And <laughs> very possible at that point. <laughs> right. And so I, they, you know, I even went into the restroom one of the times and I said, it doesn't have a scent. Like I put my hand there. It doesn't have an odor. So we went in. And they checked and they said, yes, your water broke, but I was still only one centimeter dilated and I'd been contracting for a week and a half. And my hope, I was hoping to, to deliver without uh, an epidural. I thought, you know, I have a very high threshold for pain because I've dealt with sciatica pain all my life. And I have a chronic illness with my stomach that's fairly new, but you know, I, I, I've, um, I've dealt with, with pain. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to see how it goes, feel it out. And then make the decision if necessary when the time comes. Uh, but unfortunately, after monitoring me, I, I think I was in the hospital around 3.30 in the afternoon. And by about nine o'clock, I was still only one centimeter. And and my contractions were coming in a little bit closer and I and my water had broken and labor had begun, but my body was just not doing anything. So mm. they had to give me, uh, I think it was called Cyclotec, which that's was what, that's what they started my induction with. Yes. I yeah. Did. Yeah. So they gave me that to, to kind of start the induction to get things rolling. And when they did that pain was just gnarly. It was, it was really, really awful. And um, I lasted about nine hours with that before I did the epidural. And then I did the epidural. And when they gave me the epidural in the process of giving it to me, all of the fluid left my body. Um, just, I, I mean, the entire bed was soaking. There was a huge puddle on the floor. Every every bit of fluid left. And they want you to retain yeah. some fluid inside for the baby. Right. Did right. they do the thing with you with the, they put the catheter in to replace amniotic fluid? Yes. That was super yeah. fun. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they put the catheter in and then they, they pump fluid in, you know, to, to replace the amniotic fluid. And, um, oh, and another thing too, the week uh, leading up to delivery, um, I, I had two to three high blood pressure readings and I had had stellar blood pressure the entire pregnancy. Right. So this was unusual. And the day of delivery, I was diagnosed with preeclampsia, uh, which is not something, you know, it's, it's, they called it preeclampsia without, um, symptoms or something like that, because uh, I didn't have it before I I got it the day of delivery. And of course, the way you cure that is delivering the baby, which I was in process of doing. So then they also had to watch me for my blood pressure. And they had to wrap my legs with these things that were supposed to like help the blood flow in my legs. And, um, and, and of course, they said, Okay, just rest and sleep. And we'll come back and check on you and see how you're dilating. And of course you can't sleep because they're in there every 20 minutes. They're when the G goes off, you wake up and there's someone sitting at a monitor kind of looking at you. And yeah, very bizarre. Yeah, I, <laughs> I never slept and we tried to figure it out. And I think I was awake for something like 39 or 42 hours. Oof. Um, 
you know, and I was saying that thing earlier about not having any sleep throughout the pregnancy. It's really funny that the morning, the night before the delivery, I had slept 10 hours straight. I didn't even get up to pee. So my body knew this yeah. is coming. Prepare. Right, right. <laughs> you better be ready. Yeah. <laughs> so they they kept checking me and kept checking me. And it was maybe like at two in the morning they checked and I had, I had only gone up two and a half centimeters. So whatever they gave me wasn't really working. Um, and they, they were, they just said, you know what, we're going to keep checking. We're going to give you a little bit more and, uh, and we'll come back. And then they came back. I can't remember what time it was, maybe six. And I had actually started to dilate and I started to dilate faster, luckily. So I think I was at like six and a half, but then somebody commented on my legs moving and I was in a lot of pain this whole time. And I thought, okay, I have the, I have the epidural, but I still have pain and this is probably normal. But somebody said, are you able to move your legs? And I moved them. And I said, yeah, I've been able to move them this whole time. And they said, okay, you're actually not supposed to be able to move your legs. So you, you, you don't have that epidural working right now. So we have to have to come back in and what's that? As I'm shaking with rage, that's just, I, yeah. I'm amazed at this, like that overlap. It's just, ah, uh, continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they, they said, you're not supposed to have that. So they brought the guy back in to, to give, to redo the epidural. And, uh, and, you know, so they had to redo the epidural and, and then we think it was working then, you know, I started to be able to move my legs a little bit. They were heavy, but I was still kind of able to move them a little bit later. And it was kind of one of those things where, it was like okay at this point I've I've been going at it for a long time it's it's not even worth bringing up anymore I oh it's you know we're we're this far along and so they came and checked it on me about maybe seven forty five and I had dilated I was ten plus one which is again odd why don't you just call it eleven but I was, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was eleven centimeters dilated and and so they said okay we're gonna get ready to start pushing. And I was like, okay, this is all happening very fast. Uh, you know, one one second you're just lying there, and the next they're like, okay, push, push, push. Uh, you know, and they kind of briefly go through. This is what you're going to do, and this is how you're going to push. And and so we go through it, and I'm pushing, and you know, your contractions are close. And the way it works is you push with the contraction. So. Right. Uh, my contractions were coming in as I started to push my contractions started to go further and further apart, which is not what they want to happen. Your contract, you know, the whole time you're waiting for your contractions right. to get closer together so that you can get to that pushing point so that you're dilated and can push. Yeah. And they started to go further apart. And so they had to stop in the middle and they said, okay, now we're going to give you, Oh gosh, what was it? It's the other drug. It's the one with the P I can't think of the name of it. Um, it's another induction drug. It's uh, it's it's Pitocin? a pretty common one. I'm sorry. What was it? Was it Pitocin? Yes, thank you. Pitocin? They gave me, yes, they gave me Pitocin, and uh, so the Pitocin was supposed to keep the contractions going, and so they gave me the Pitocin, and the contractions started going again, and they were close together, so we started pushing again, and then the and then. The Pitocin, the Pitocin backfired because then my contractions were coming in too fast and they were coming in right on top of each other and my body Oof. wasn't recovering and the baby wasn't recovering. And, uh, you know, the baby's heart rate is somewhere between 149, 163. That's like a normal range. Baby's heart rate just started dropping. And, <gasps> and it was, you know, and my husband's there and, you know, he's standing with me. And all of a sudden that little alarm starts going off. Yeah. And then there's like 11 people in the room running around doing stuff. 
and he's off to the side freaking out and we don't know what's going on. And I'm in a ton of pain and I can't stop and ask, Hey, what's happening. Right. Uh, but I look over and I see the monitor and I see that it's down, her heart rate's down to 90 and it's, you know, it's just dropping. And so they start rotating me. And then, you know, like you were saying about just feeling like an object in the room, you know, oh. they, they're all holding me and physically rotating my body left, Moving rotating my body right. And just, you know, kind of flipping me around and adjusting the bed and, and, you know, kind of moving around and touching the belly. And then they put the internal monitor on and they're trying to adjust the baby in some way to get the baby's heart rate back up. And, and we just don't know. And you know what? It's one of those things too. I don't know what happened. And I didn't think to ask afterwards when everything, mm. when the dust settled, I didn't even think to ask. And I, and mm. I would love to know what the hell happened. Yeah. But, um, you know, so it was just a terrifying moment. And then, and then, you know, her heart rate starts to stabilize again. And as that's happening, then they start to come over and talk to me about an emergency C-section, get me to sign the paperwork and, you know, talk me through it. And, and then they say, you know what, we're going to give it one more shot and have you try and push again, but, and we're, we're stopping the Pitocin. So they, they actually gave me like an hour of rest before starting again. And they said, we're just going to start and try this one last time. And then we're just going to go in for the C-section. And so we start pushing and I'm giving it my all and I'm using the mirror that, you know, I wanted the mirror. I wanted to see what was happening. I wanted that to motivate me. There's the baby's head, you know, if you can just push. Um, and so, you know, luckily I, I did push, I did suffer a lot of tears internal and external Oof. Um, oh, girl. and, um, the internal ones were really difficult, uh, especially in the healing later, they didn't heal properly. I was, uh, you know, they say it's like eight weeks for C-section about or a little bit more and then six weeks for vaginal. But I was still I was still not fully repaired down there at eight weeks. But by 10 weeks, I was I was OK because they actually had to like go in and use liquid uh, nitrate to to fix things. Because, again, the doctor or the so the midwife was great. The doctor who was there, you know, sewing me up and everything, I guess, did it wrong. And the the, the part of the skin that's supposed to be tucked in and and sewn up was sort of tucked out. And the way that I think about it, like when explaining it is the way you like sew up a pillowcase and you kind of have the seam and you're meant to do it inside out so that it's neat. You know, you can't turn me inside out. So so the skin was, you know, out and exposed and it was just raw the entire time during those first few weeks of postpartum and just the hardest time healing. The hardest, I mean, (laughs) sitting on donuts and... You know, anytime I wasn't using the boppy to breastfeed, I was sitting on it um, and it was just all very painful. And so, oh. yeah, it was and, and traumatizing. <laughs> yes, yes. And traumatizing. Wow. It's uh, wow. traumatizing, I think, is a really it is not talked about enough that you can love your child and have a traumatic birth. Exactly. I think that's oh, good. Yeah. And that yeah. you can still really have valued parts of your birth experience and, and be in awe of certain things about your body. And I just, and even in awe of certain things that medical professionals can do, like knowing that that the heart rate experience happened to us repeatedly, that myself mm-hmm. and the baby's heart both had an intense reaction to Pitocin and they multiple times started Pitocin, then stopped Pitocin and started and gave me turbo to stop my contractions and then reschooled wow. them and did all that positional changing. But the fact that they can know and look at that heart rate and know that there's a problem and help you is impressive and yeah. terrifying and dehumanizing. Yes. And <laughs> yes, and. yeah, yeah. Yes. Oof. 
Wow. Yeah, and it's I'm it's exhausted just hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> People always say, "Oh, but at least you and the baby are okay." And it's like, "Yes, that's true, but I don't want that fact to completely dismiss the fact that it was a process and it was traumatizing and it was difficult and we yeah. shouldn't just shrug that off with, "Well, at least you guys are okay." Yeah, that's, I don't yeah. Never, that's, that's the, the buts and the at least. It's I had a traumatic birth and I have a beautiful child. Yeah, exactly. Are exactly. True. Yes. Yeah. It just, it just amazes me that, um, you know, women have been giving birth for how many millennia? (laughs) Since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And that, that it, you know, that it still can be such a fraught and traumatizing experience. Yes. It, it makes you wonder about births before this modern medicine. Oh my goodness. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was just a little detail that you threw in there that, that just, that amazes me, but that after they give you the epidural, you are not allowed, you are not able to move your legs. Yeah. You're not supposed to be able to move your legs. Well, this I was mean, bizarre. It's interesting to hear, like, Drina's nurses gave her feedback that is what I would have expected, which is, oh, you can move your legs. That shouldn't be happening. I, on the other hand, was having to argue with my nurse saying, I can move my legs. That shouldn't be happening. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it's ama- I just think the levels of knowledge or training or skill and how much women are or aren't listened to really wildly vary because similarly the epidural did not work and then I remember getting to the operating room and a different anesthesiologist going okay I have to check your epidural or we have to put you under general and going oh this isn't correct and redoing it and suddenly I couldn't feel anything from the waist down and they cut me open wow wow and thank goodness they checked it before they cut you open. Yes. And good on you. Good on you for knowing about the leg movement thing. It's not something that I, I mean, I, I learned about it and I just didn't even think about it in the moment. But but the amount of women who probably don't know, who go in there not knowing and who just experience the pain and right. deal with it because they think it's part of it. And, you know, well, it's, it's, it's scary. Good. There's still like a weird, just like you, I didn't really have a plan about whether or not I was going to have an epidural. And there's a weird part of you that for about five minutes feels like a failure for saying yes. And then the next contraction hits and you're like, never mind, I'm great. Um, yeah. But then still not get relief. I think people are afraid to ask sometimes after the epidural and like, oh, well, this must be, just be normal and I'm being a wimp. Because they say things to you about expect normal pain. That was something they said to me about recovery, expect normal post-operative pain. And yeah. so your brain is trying to figure out, well, what is normal? What yeah. is normal? What is normal? Especially, yeah, especially if it's your first child. Like, you have nothing to compare it to. Well, or your I've first learned, operation. I've learned yes. to ask, ask if you're unsure. Because I got home and it was not three days later that my fever shot to 102. And I ended up in the ER for eight hours with a uterine infection. And <sighs> the level of pain I'd been in, I thought, was normal. Right. Right. Yeah. Expect normal post-operative pain. If you've never had an operation, <laughs> how do you know what post-operative pain is supposed to be like? And if it's normal, you don't. Exactly. exactly. You don't, you have no basis to make that kind of an assessment. 
And it was oh. interesting too, you saying about the uh, the pregnancy classes, you know, we did the pregnancy classes, we were feeling really good, you know, I was like, Oh, I would love to use a pregnancy ball, I would love to do this, I would love to do that. Let's make sure we bring a scarf, you know, you have all these things and just did not do a single thing, not a single fucking thing we learned. I will say while I was waiting for that epidural, the pregnancy ball was my friend, it was a little mm -hmm. bit comical, I would sit between contractions and bounce to distract myself. And then mm -hmm. the big contraction mm -hmm. would hit and I'd like throw myself half onto the bed and bend over and yell and I'm like get back on the pregnancy ball. <laughs> wow there's no wow. dignity there's none except that there is no dignity <laughs> yes yes oh oh my goodness oh my goodness yeah it's wow incredible. you you are warriors man you are warriors it's amazing. There is, I don't know if you are aware of this, but there's a, there's a, there's a Sioux tradition called the sun dance and um, the, the male warriors um, it's a four day ritual. And on the last day uh, the male warriors will pierce. So they'll have um, a bone needle that will go through um, under the skin uh, on their chest and then it will be tied with a rope to the cottonwood tree in the center. And as they dance, they will lean back wow. against that rope and they will dance until, um, and this is for a purpose, they're praying as they go, um, but uh, they will dance until the, they tear, until the, the, mm. the bone pin tears their flesh wow. off. Um, and, uh, and, this is one of the most sacred ceremonies and um, considered something, you know, I, I mean, it's incredibly painful and it is, yeah. it is, and it is uh, when you have done the sun dance, um, you know, there is an honor that goes along with this, but their, their particular tradition is that women do not have to do this because they give birth and there is <laughs> nothing that a man could ever do that could come close to the kind of accomplishment that a woman, you know, achieves in having gone through childbirth. Yes. So agree. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't yeah. know. They don't know. <laughs> yeah. My, the way my husband kept putting it afterwards is he would, he told me it was as if he'd known me all of our lives. And then one day I stood in the middle of traffic, put out my hand and stopped a vehicle from moving. And he just didn't know that I had that superpower. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to know the difference yeah. between men and women, my husband slept through putting the internal monitor on the baby's head through my cervix. Oh my God. <laughs> it was at like two o'clock in the morning, but still, I, I haven't, I haven't let go of that one yet. <laughs> Must have been nice to have that little nap. <laughs> oh, my. oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yes. There is no doubt. You are warriors. You are warriors for for having having gone through that. My goodness. Well, any other um, you know, I mean, after stories like that, it's like, well, what can we say? All right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, do you have thoughts about 
you know, Drina, you're seven months out, so you have a little bit more perspective um, in terms of looking back on the event. And uh, and Jesse, and your you said six weeks. Yes, yeah, six, six weeks. And a half yeah. weeks. Great. Do you have any any uh, perspective or thoughts looking back on it that uh, you didn't have at the time because you were in the middle of everything? How are you feeling about it now? I mean, I would probably say, you know, if, like if I were giving advice to someone else to always trust your body and your instincts and and just be strong with with what you want and the knowledge that you hope to take from your medical staff and just anybody along the way. I mean, it's so it's your body. It's your body. No yes. matter what is happening, it is your body that is doing this job. They are working for you bottom line they are work, they are there to work for you to help your body continue through this process so you know just speak up and yeah, every every situation's always going to be different you know manage those expectations but also go in strong-willed um you know that that it's you know if i if i if i think back on my experience and think you know, is there anything that I would have done differently? I can't, I can't really think of, you know, my body was, was doing what it was meant to do. And in the way that it wanted to do it, maybe, um, I, I wish I was more educated on those drugs, you know, going mm -hmm. in before ever facing them. I didn't know. I knew that Pitocin would induce. And when they gave me something completely different, I was like, uh, I don't really have any knowledge aside from what you're telling me. And even though I am here in a hospital, I do, uh, you know, respect other types of medicine too, and probably would have wanted to think this through and, and have more knowledge on the drug before taking it and whatnot. You know, it's, it's such an interesting situation and I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I would agree with all of that. Like the, the knowledge of the medication I, I found very comforting. Um, even, even as I was in a gradually escalating situation. So I would say if I was giving advice, be as prepared as you, as you can know as much as you can, because mm -hmm. it's, it's comforting and it gives you the ability to have conversations and advocate. But then what I learned on the, the other side of it is also that you didn't fail if even though you did all of that, you weren't as in charge as you wanted to be. Yeah. Right. So it's right. it's very easy to feel in the moment that you didn't advocate for yourself hard enough. And it's like, well, no, maybe you did, and you what you were advocating for wasn't possible, or you you got a staff that wasn't prepared, wasn't as prepared and educated as they should have been to be prepared for you to advocate for yourself. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you didn't take care of yourself and your baby. So it's both. It's be as prepared as you can, be as strong willed as you can, know yourself, trust yourself. And know that you're in charge and not in charge at the same time. Right. Yeah. You know, saying that thing, it, it sort of circles back to the way this this whole conversation started too. Um, you know, you're you're only in control to you know of of so many things. You're you're in control of your body until you're not. Your body wants to do something differently, or maybe it's the staff that's wanting to do something differently. And and it's it's sort of a crummy feeling to feel like you don't have that control. Um, if it's the medical staff, but with your body, you just have to kind of trust. This is the way my body wants to do it. This is the way, you know, if, if these drugs didn't e exist, 
sure, I could be in labor for four weeks. Why not? But oh, <laughs> but oh you, God, but you can't, <laughs> and right. and they need that baby to come out, and right. so you kind of you kind of go with it. And and Jesse, I'm just so sorry to hear about your experience, and uh, but you you sound like you're dealing with it really well. And and how's your healing? <laughs> you're so fresh. It's it's a lot better. I I I was not prepared for exactly how immobilizing C-section recovery would be at the beginning. I'm yeah. a, I'm a very active person. I'm used to regaining control of my body post procedure injury very quickly, and to feel that um, it was very demoralizing the first yeah. couple of weeks. Uh, I will say so. If anyone is listening to this and goes through a C-section, brace for impact. Uh, I got to do basically both versions of recovery because my baby's head appeared and disappeared. So I had some super fun down below and some super fun across the midsection to, yeah. to deal with. And then the infection made it that much worse. And then around weeks three and four, things started to take a turn for the better. And I now have a much greater ability to go for a walk and I can stand up or sit down without hauling myself up and I can stand or sit while holding my own child and don't need assistance. And I'm grateful for small Mm. favors. That's great. That's really great. Yes. Yeah. Um, One last question. Did either of you have the chance to speak with other women who had given birth before you went in and did that help at all? Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. In my experience, similar to what we were talking about with mom friends earlier, there were some women who had given birth who I felt had perspective to share and some who it's almost like a defensive humor that goes with the whole thing in a way that's not terribly productive. Got it. Yeah. I I was faced with a lot or I was met with a lot of women who either said they didn't really remember that much um, or they, or they wanted to spare me, uh, you know, the details and have me have my own experience, which I don't know. It's like, thanks. And also that's not, you know, that's not helpful um, Mm. if I'm asking. Uh, what yes. I did was I I actually scoured the internet and found any uh, pregnancy videos that were not, I'm sorry, delivery videos that were not removed from YouTube and watched those. And I found those to be more helpful than than the birthing classes I went through. Interesting. Uh, yeah, they they were a uh, cool Instagram account called Orgasmic Birth that really uh, de like demystified the the. The, the final moments of birth for me, if anyone's interested. Great. Great. Mm. Yeah. Wonderful. Any final thoughts? Um, I mean, I, I might do it again. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, you know, just a, just a quick note on that. It's really incredible the amount of people who will ask you, even when your baby is two weeks old, so when's the next one? Oh, my God. It's <laughs> wow. invasive questions. Like, Lord, yes. I just got this one out. Exactly. It's <laughs> like they, they weren't done, that they were never done. They wanted to know, when are you having a baby? And then you're pregnant and they want to know, so how, you know, how's your vagina? <laughs> and then you have the baby and they say, when's the next one? 
guys. When you're breastfeeding, you know it's what's best for the baby, or are you? I just, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, I mean, all of that to say, it is still an incredible thing that our bodies do and go through and and really it is just so important to take care of ourselves physically and mentally just mentally for sure i mean they go yeah. hand in hand body and mind they are right. linked in so many ways yeah 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 beautifully put women are incredible pregnancy is miraculous and awe-inspiring and birth is impossible and yet people do it every day and yeah. I, I say this uh, very carefully because I don't want it to sound like I have regrets because I don't I'm very very glad that I did this and that I have a child I just also think it's incredible that women have a choice about becoming mothers and that choice is an immense responsibility and no one gets to make it for you so I think along with what our bodies do naturally that's incredible what we are able to do with the choice to mother in a million ways mm -hmm whether that's by having a child of your own or not is equally incredible. Absolutely. Again, well put, beautifully put. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. This has been amazing and incredibly enlightening. And, uh, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. And uh, sending lots of uh, love and health and good vibes and all that your way. Thank, thank you. you. Andrina, thank if you're you. ever looking for a mom friend, you seem like one I'd love to have. Yes. Yes. I am friending you. Do it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yay. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, take care of yourselves and uh, everyone who's listening. Take care and blessed be. 